Well, hey, folks, welcome back to the Herd Podcast. Where I'm David Shepard, the MLA for Edmonton City Center. Proud new Democrat. You might have noticed that we weren't around last week. We do apologize. Uh, sometimes we just have things that come up in the schedule and we aren't quite able to get there. So I apologize for missing last week, but I'm really happy to be back. We've got some great stuff to dig into this week. Of course, February is Black History Month. And so for me, that's been a personal passion project since I became an MLA. So we're going to talk a little bit uh, later in the show about some of the things that have been happening around Black History Month. I'm going to off the top, going to be talking with my colleague Marie Renault, who is the MLA for St. Albert. And of course, she is the official opposition critic for community and social services. I'm going to be talking with her about some changes that the government has made on age and income supports. And, uh, and how those payments are made. And also going to dig in, you might have heard this week, finally, at long last, the uh, UCP Minister, Health Minister Tyler Shandro came out with the long-awaited Ernst & Young review report on AHS, Alberta Health Services, that being the organization which basically is responsible for providing health care across the province of Alberta. So this is a massive report, uh, just starting to dig into it and look through it, but certainly there are some big concerns out of the gate. So we're going to talk about a bit of where that is coming from. But off the top, I'm uh, going to get into my conversation here with Marie Renault about concerns on H and income support. All right. I am here with Marie Renault. She is the MLA for St. Albert in her second term, and she is our official opposition critic for community and social services. How are you doing, Marie? Good, David. How are you? I'm doing good. You've been busy lately. There's been a lot of conversation uh, on the H file, Alberta Income for the Severely Handicapped. Yeah, I've been busy. I, I wish I wasn't busy <laughs> opposing these things or uh, highlighting what the government's doing. But yeah, it's been busy. So this is a file you know really well. And you know this pretty personally. You spent a number of years working as the uh, executive director for uh, LOSICA. Mm -hmm. And so you've been working with persons with developmental disabilities. And indeed, many of those individuals then are receiving AISH as their main means of support. So can you tell me a little bit about that work. What's your What's your history with this? Uh, people with disabilities? Well, first of all, I come from a family where that was our reality, right? So oh, with disabilities. Okay. So uh, from a very young age, I understand sort of uh, just different life paths and, and different challenges, different points of view. But in, in my work, in my professional work, I did support people with disabilities and their families. And yes, met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people on H. I've seen the H process, the adjudication process, the appeal process, and then the grinding poverty that results afterwards. I've also seen uh, when people are not successful getting on H, they're required to get benefits like income support. And that becomes a whole other story because the benefits are almost half of, of what age benefits are. So I have seen, sadly, up close, um, the reality of poverty, of people that live on age and people that live on income supports. And so to see what the government is doing without any consultation or any apparent thought to the well-being of Albertans is, is absolutely it's hard to find words sometimes. It's just mm. stunning. It's shocking. It's it's. Yeah. So this is very personal for you. You've worked with a lot of these folks. I'm sure they've become friends or people that you've come to care about very much. 
So one of the first things we've seen is they've made some changes now to the payment date. So they were paying people their age payments three to four days before the end of the month. And now they're just going to do it every month on the first of the month. Now, to some people, they might hear that and go, oh, that's, that's, that's not a big deal. Why is this a concern for people uh, in this situation? Right. So I, I think if you think about someone on age, they're living on just over $1,600 a month. So they've made arrangements, you know, to make, make sure their rent is paid on time. Perhaps they pay with their cell phone. They buy their bus pass before the first of the month. And then without notice, government has changed those dates. So they used to get payment a few days, about a week before the end of the month. That is now gone. So that requires them to speak to landlords, go to the bank, change, you know, dates that uh, payments are taken out. But one of the most sort of um, tangible tangible harms, I guess, is the inability of people to buy their bus pass. So mm. these bus passes are not available online everywhere. Um, people have to go line up to purchase the bus pass. So to not be paid until the first, that means they can't get their bus pass till the first. That means they're without transportation. And this is typically, as I said earlier, this is typically a group living with some serious grinding poverty. And this is a group that typically does not have savings or this mm-hmm. bridge funding, really, to get yeah. them through a mistake like this. Like, They're living so, day to day. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Paycheck to paycheck. I mean, this is a problem. It's just like how many Albertans live paycheck to paycheck? Imagine living on $1,600 a month, paycheck to paycheck, and then suddenly without notice. Yeah, that's all changing. Deal with it. I, I guess, um, you know, I... I like to think, I like to believe that this government did not do this maliciously. This is just one more example of the absolute harm, chaos, and confusion that create when they fail to consult with the real Albertans that are impacted by this change. Yeah, and indeed, uh, you know, the on the day that this was announced, I, I remember I saw quite a bit on social media and talked to a few folks, and none of the staff that work with uh, individuals, none of the case workers, none of the people in the Alberta work centers and other places had any indication this was coming, any awareness, and weren't able to even, even able to answer questions when people were calling in to find out what was happening. Right. No, they, they aren't. I mean, they, they were just told people had no notice. But, you know, talk about it. Insulting. So people were told the minister went on social media because apparently that's how government communicates with Albertans now, went on social media and told people that if they had comments or questions or concerns to contact their caseworkers. Well, anybody that's worked or supported people on age or income support understand it is not easy to get in touch with caseworkers. Right. These caseworkers are completely overwhelmed with, by the size of their caseloads. Like, I'm talking how large hundreds, are these? hundreds, hundreds of people okay. on their caseload. Now, remember, in the last budget, this government cut over 200 positions in community and social services. That means caseworkers. Hmm. So they have introduced this change without letting the staff know, without letting um, disabled and low-income Albertans know. And then they've reduced the amount of people that can actually help navigate through this chaos. So it's absolute um, disregard for the well-being of Albertans and just... um, you know, this government is just so quick to hand out like almost $5 billion to profitable corporations and shareholders and, you know, telling us how this is going to make life wonderful and we've all got to tighten up and do this. And then to treat people that are already struggling with grinding poverty and in many cases, very complex medical issues. Mm. And to introduce this chaos and stress is is just beyond me. It's, it's just beyond me. And when you say, yeah, you mentioned chaos and stress. And 
and that's part of the thing that I, I keep thinking too. Of course, I've I've uh, I've uh, worked with many of these folks that have come to my office looking for help, sometimes applying for aid, sometimes getting through to their caseworker, dealing with different issues. And I know a number of these individuals are folks who have limited capacity in some respects, so they have some developmental challenges. So it takes them a little longer to process information or to work through things and need assistance. Or f- these are often folks who have very high anxiety already and are struggling with that as a mental health issue. So to drop something like this on them then mm-hmm. with a month's notice, it's I, I don't see how they how they're yeah. in a position to be able to handle it. It's 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 ridiculous. It's almost you know you sort of have to pinch yourself and say, are they really doing this? Like, is the UCP literally doing this to some people that you know? Sometimes I hate using the word vulnerable, but are truly the most vulnerable. I mean, we met a I met a young man or a, a young person earlier today who was telling me, you know, he gets ninety seven dollars to to buy a bus pass to get around. He's got chronic medical issues, um, some spinal issues, but also some serious mental health issues, PTSD. And this bus pass, you know, uses to get to therapy, to get to treatment, but also to look at the future, right? So employment introduces change with no warning, can't get a hold of his caseworker, caseworker doesn't know what's going on, can't get a bus pass, can't get to medical appointments. There is no plan for the future for this person. And so this is multiply this by, you know, you got 60,000 people on income support and 67,000 people on H. This is the kind of widespread chaos this government has introduced by just, you know, flick of a pen. It's ridiculous. And so has the government given any reason for this at all? Like uh, I saw them make the announcement. I didn't see them explain why this was better for anybody or how this improved anything. Uh, Have you seen any justification or reason for why the government would want to do this? I haven't seen any real reason. I've seen a lot of spin. You know, the first one was, no, we're going to make the payments on the first so people have enough money to pay their bills. Baloney. Uh, I think they're doing this to, it's an accounting trick to move about $200 million into the next fiscal year to look like they've, you know, managed spending when really they just introduced chaos. They've cut income support, transportation benefits, um, whatever excuse they come up with for that. Who knows how they're going to spend that. So sort of a financial shell game. Oh, yeah. Okay, so basically the payment then that would have been made, uh, I guess, at the end of March now instead gets made on April 1st. So it's outside of the 2019-2020 fiscal year. So they get that much less on their books. You know, and let's be honest. That's just callous. Oh, it's just, I mean, it's. You know, it's kind of shades of standing up in the legislature. I know you remember this, right? We're saying, why are you cutting H? You have de-indexed H. And they literally stand up and look at you, bull face lie, and say, we didn't cut H. Well, you know, they're just playing games. It's just spin. It's dangerous. And I think that we owe it to all of our constituents and all Albertans to be honest with them. If we're going to make a change, be honest. Tell them this is what we're doing. This is how it will impact you. And this is why. Enough of the spin. Like this is harming real people. They need real information. They need notice. But more than anything, they need to be consulted. Indeed. And I mean, really, these this is nickels and dimes in the budget. Right. So on the for the government, this this is not any sort of significant impact, any sort of significant savings. But for the people that are affected, this is very, very serious impact. Now, you had some folks there in this morning and you sort of did a little press conference. What, are, what were some of the stories people were sharing about how this is going to hurt them? Oh, it was just 
it's just awful. You know, it's, I guess it's when you receive tons of emails and you read them and you're a little bit separated from the stories, you know, but when you meet them face to face and you have to look at people when they tell you that, you know, I can't get a bus pass. So that means I can't do this and I can't go to the doctor and I can't get to the grocery store to buy groceries and I can't walk that far. And it, it makes me I don't, I'm sorry. It just, it's ridiculous that this government would completely ignore Albertans who rely on their government, on their representatives, on their leadership to make decisions um, that don't harm them, that don't knowingly harm them. So now this government knows, we've told them, you are harming people and they're still doing it and they're spinning it and kind of lying about it. And so that tells me that um, we have a bigger problem than just the corruption and the lies, but we have a, a government that is unwilling to listen to Albertans and Albertans that are really struggling. So what have there been any other uh, changes or challenges that have been happening, I guess, on Asian income support files? Yeah, there's there's been changes. And so, you know, because this isn't a government that is committed to honesty and transparency and openness, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a hunt for us to figure out what they're changing. Often mm. the first indication is when we start to get calls and emails about people saying, you know, oh my goodness, I just got my payment and I'm missing $200 or I'm missing a hundred. Then we start to see a pattern and we dig, but then we see things that they have changed the age adjudication guide. So what this is, is a guidebook for people making decisions about people's age benefits. It changes what they're evaluating and how they're evaluating that. So we're in the process of trying to compare the changes to what was there before and see. So we know the UCP changed the AISH legislation or the laws around AISH so they could make changes behind closed doors. So now we're looking for where are these things going to happen? Who's going to be impacted again? And and so I, I feel good that Albertans know that we are listening and we are fighting and they are reaching out to all of us in numbers that um, sadly... The numbers are huge, but I'm thankful that they are, you know, reaching out to us and saying, hey, this is happening. We need your help. We need your voice. And I think all together, all of us are standing up and 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 speaking. Absolutely. I think you've been doing a great job on that. And I mean, as you say, I, I guess it says a lot about priorities, because as you noted, you know, we we have the uh, we have the uh, the corporate the corporate giveaway, you know, so four point seven billion dollars. We know that's going out to uh, to uh, companies that are making a good profit already. And there are no checks and balances on that. Nobody's nobody's uh, making sure that money's invested back in jobs or anything like that. But then on something as small as this, like I said, nickels and dimes on the provincial budget all these barriers being put in place, all this additional red tape, all these things sort of just trying to track every single, every single cent of it. It just, it's, I guess it speaks to their priorities that they're, they're more concerned about what these people who are struggling are getting than they are about. No, you're right. You're absolutely right, David. And you know, it's just, it's so insulting. You know, you hear about the premier flying his buddies to Saskatoon on a private plane, what, $16,000 for his buddies and their wives to from the stampede to go to Saskatoon and you know, he'll say things like, no, you got to spend money to make money and, you know, fly to London and have like 
uh, who knows what it was, like a vitamin C shower. Or, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> like staying in fancy hotels yeah. and champagne bar and, you know, zip over to the UK for whatever meeting that we never hear about. And then they're taking away $97 for transportation for a bus pass from some of the most vulnerable Albertans that I know that are living in poverty. So that tells you right there what is important to Kenny and the ECP. Absolutely. So I really appreciate the work that Marie does on this. Uh, I think for people that are living in these situations that are depending on these supports, this is very personal. It very, cuts very close to home and can have a real effect on their day-to-day lives. And something that is also true in that respect, I think for a lot of Albertans, and we've all been in the position where we have been sick or we've had a loved one who has been sick and we've realized how important it is that we have a accessible and affordable and working healthcare system. So healthcare has long been one of the political hot potatoes here in the province of Alberta. Over the years, we've seen conservative governments make all kinds of changes. Funding goes up and goes down. We see severe cuts. We see money come back. We see things reorganized. We see programs started and canceled. And Oftentimes, we can sort of lose track of everything because it's it's complex. There's a lot of money involved, and there's a lot of systems and a lot of individuals that provide that care. Now, the UCP government, when they, uh, as part of their election platform, said that they were going to do a full review of Alberta Health Services. So healthcare is something that is incredibly important and incredibly personal to each of us as we've had to access and make use of that system. And as such, I think it's something that is considered, an all, it is a sacred trust that we have as governments and as elected officials, that we protect those services and ensure that when people need them at times of incredible vulnerability, things that have massive impact on people's lives, that we are ensuring those services are available where people need them, when they need them, so that they can get the care they need. So Albertans understandably are very sensitive on what happens with their healthcare system and ensuring that is efficient, accessible, and affordable. At the same time, we recognize that healthcare is an incredibly complex system. So many different layers of things going on from top to bottom to provide that frontline care. So it's a challenging thing for government sometimes to try to navigate this, something that is one of the largest costs for the government as well. But it being that important essential service, that's money well spent. But we want to make sure that we are getting value for, I think, the healthcare dollars that we put in while protecting those services and the people that work to provide them. So the UCP government, one of their things is they, that they campaigned on is they were very concerned about the cost of health care. And so they wanted to do a full review of Alberta Health Services, that being the organization that provides the uh, that provides these services. This is something that was created by conservative governments in the late uh, late 2000s. And basically what it was, it used to be everything was run out of the Ministry of Alberta Health. They created this extra outside body, Alberta Health Services, to basically run and manage the health care system while Alberta to health, the ministry provides the funding and sets some of the policy and some of the other direction. Now, of course, those two things work very closely together. And while some previous conservative governments and perhaps the current uh, like to try to use that as a way to distance themselves from anything negative that might happen in the healthcare system as a result, result of their decisions, we recognize that they're, that ultimately the responsibility for the quality of healthcare and the access to that healthcare for Albertans rests at the door of the minister and the government. 
So we had this week released uh, what the UCP had promised and has been long in process. The report from uh, Ernst & Young, a, uh, a audit company that looked at Alberta Health Services. They talked to frontline staff. They talked to people throughout the system. They did their own analysis. They've released a massive report, hundreds of pages, outlining a, a wide number of recommendations and what they believe are opportunities to realize savings. Now, there's recommendations in there that indeed I think are reasonable to act on. There's things we can do to improve that system and make it more efficient and make sure Albertans can get that quality accessible health care. And a lot of those are work that actually started back when we were a government. And we worked very hard to try to find ways that we could uh, make for a better system. So whether that's working with a scheduling system, uh, trying to increase home care and community care and providing better oversight on that, uh, making better use of MRI and CT machines, uh, looking at how we reform procurement. So there's a lot of different aspects that we can work on in the system. But there are some very profound concerns with some of the recommendations in this report, and particularly in the hands of a government like this. The minister seems to be assuming that he knows what the outcome is going to be of the negotiations that are going on right now with physicians. And not only that, they've been attacking physicians and attacking uh, attacking. Uh, not only that, they've been attacking physicians and trying to cut back on areas of their pay and spreading some real misinformation about how doctors work. And that's a real concern for actually how we provide frontline care, that first point of contact for so many people, particularly in rural communities. When they talk about things like in this report about optimizing staffing levels, that's conservative talk for cutting jobs. Now, this government has already shown that they plan to lay off over 700 nursing staff across the province. They intend to make some serious cutbacks, potentially for folks that are working in lab services, potentially EMS and paramedics, and in a number of other areas that support the healthcare system. So when we talk about optimizing staffing levels, we really want to find out a bit more detail about where this government's kind of going. I know in my conversations with nurses and folks across the province, nobody has told me we have too many nurses on our, on our unit. If anything, people are telling me about the shortage of staff in so many areas. So we are deeply concerned. When we hear this government talk about working with independent partners and alternative delivery models, well, that again is talk about creating more room for private profit in our public health care system. Because every dollar that goes to pad the pocket of a private company is a dollar that is not being invested in upkeeping our public health care system. So this government seems to be looking at a massive transformation that some folks have noted goes even maybe to more extremes than what even were proposed back in the years under Premier Ralph Klein. These are changes that could have massive impacts, both for people working in the system, for their ability to provide quality care to Albertans, and indeed for folks to be able to access the care they need. So there's a lot of work that's going to need to be done. I know as the official opposition critic for health, I've got a lot more reading to do and a lot more conversations to have. But you can already see folks are out there in the community talking about the fact that we simply cannot trust this government with reforming our healthcare system, or even with just managing the parts of it that are working well. And that's the important part to realize that even Ernst and Young in their report said, there's a lot of things we do well in our healthcare system in Alberta. And there's a lot of ways that we've improved and we succeed. But what we've heard from this government over and over and over again is them just talking about the negatives and talking about the the worst parts and the and the and the challenges because they want 
to to have that opportunity, I think, to take down and tear apart so much of the system that we have and replace it with one that provides more opportunity, I'm concerned, with perhaps some of their friends. So that's something we're going to be digging into a bit more over uh, over over the next few weeks. Uh, I'm hoping to get some folks in next week on the podcast to perhaps talk in a bit more detail about what could happen with some of these changes that the government is proposing and that they seem to be in, prepared to move full steam ahead with. So that'll be coming up next week. Ultimately, our job as government is to think about community and make sure when we're providing these things that we are doing it in a way that brings people together and not separates us out. And you know, that's something I was thinking about the other day as I was getting ready for the Alberta legislature celebration for Black History Month. You know, I grew up here in the province of Alberta, and even though I lived here for 40 years, I myself was not very tied in with the black community because that's simply not how I was raised. It wasn't my, my, my dad wasn't really connected with the culture that he came from. So I didn't really connect with that, with a, with a lot of folks from those communities until really after I was elected and I started getting invited out to events and talking with, talking with people from the various African and Caribbean communities. And I realized how much it meant to them to have somebody that looked like them, that shared some of that heritage in government, in a place of power. And that was something I took very seriously. And when I started getting invited out to events for Black History Month in 2016, I started researching and learning some of those stories because I didn't know what the black history was in the province of Alberta. And over the last three or four years, I've had the opportunity to talk with so many good folks from the community about that history and where people came from. And the history of the black community in Alberta is one of building community. Folks that came here struggled you know, building on, on building new communities, building new towns in places where they always weren't always accepted and under difficult conditions, having come here from places where they'd faced a lot of a lot of prejudice and discrimination. But it was people working together, caring about each other that built those communities. So I wrote a bit of a, when I got ready for my, my speech at the legislature on Monday, that's kind of what was on my mind, how important it is that we as government remember that community is what matters and community is what builds things that we can be proud of. And community is what ensures that every person has equal opportunity. So I want to share with you the, the speech that I brought at the Alberta legislature. It'll give you a little bit of that history of the black community here in the province of Alberta and a bit of a sense of what I've had the chance to learn over the last few years. Thank you so much, Mr. Speaker, Minister Madhu, Dr. Smith. It is an absolute honor and pleasure to be here with all of you tonight on behalf of all of my colleagues in Her Majesty's loyal official opposition, our leader Rachel Notley, on the traditional territory of Treaty 6, land also of deep significance to the Métis people of Alberta, to recognize and celebrate for the fourth year here at the Alberta Legislature Black History Month. Thank you so much to all of you for coming and celebrating with us. For more than 220 years, people of African descent have been part of our province, working, contributing, and fighting for freedom and opportunity for themselves, their families, and their communities. Black history in Alberta is rich and diverse, containing a myriad of stories that reflect both the best we aspire to and at times achieve, as well as moments 
when we have fallen short. It is the indomitable pioneer spirit embodied by early black fur traders like John Lewis, Stephen Bonga, and Glasgow Crawford. It is also the tension of recognizing the incredible respect that was given to John Ware as one of the greatest cowboys of his time, but also recognizing he was still referred to as Nigger John. And it is the spirit of tenacity and independence that he passed on to his daughter, Dr. Amanda Janet Nettie Ware. It is the grit and determination of Violet King, who as one of only three women in the University of Alberta's Faculty of Law, paid her way by teaching piano lessons to become the first black female lawyer in Canada. And it's also her brother Ted, the president of the Alberta Association for the Advancement of Colored People, who sued a Calgary hotel that denied him a room because of the color of his skin, which led to a change in legislation to prevent discrimination. It's Miss Poston, the Edmonton mother who challenged our city council on its policy of discrimination at public pools. And it's Hattie Melton, who refused to be limited to a career as a nanny or a maid and instead opened Hattie's Harlem Chicken Inn, a restaurant that provided a safe space in an age of discrimination, food to anyone who was hungry regardless of their ability to pay, and jobs that helped young black women earn degrees at university to move on to better careers. It's Mary Burley, the black angel of Boyle Street who fought poverty with compassion as a social worker on the front lines of Edmonton's inner city, bringing care and dignity to some of the most marginalized in our community. And it's Doris Mays, the first black woman to work as a driver for the Edmonton Transit Service. It's the thousands of new Canadians who came here from Commonwealth nations after our federal government removed restrictions on black immigration. And the thousands who have come here since from the many nations of Africa to seek freedom from persecution or better economic opportunities for themselves and their families. Et ce sont ceux de nations francophones d'Afrique et des Caraïbes qui enrichent notre communauté ici à Edmonton et dans toute notre province. And from all of them, we inherit a legacy. The legacy of the black community in Alberta is one of resilience, of standing up against the voices of those who said, you are not truly Albertan because you are not like us. And it is one of friendship and partnership with those who open their doors and their hearts in a spirit of acceptance, equality, and community. It is a legacy of looking after and refusing to sacrifice each other during difficult times and rejecting politics of enmity and division and of refusing to bow to those in power who told them in action or in words, sit down, be quiet, and know your place. And tonight we celebrate the fruit of that resilience, that commitment, that dedication, those who refused to listen, but instead worked hard and had the ambition to make this their place too. We celebrate the teachers, social workers, athletes, nurses, academics, tradespeople, artists, first responders, caregivers, elected officials, and community leaders who have helped to build our communities and make our province a greater, more accepting, and richly diverse place to live. And I know many of them join us here tonight. That work isn't done. But remembering our heritage as Albertans of African descent, we can continue to move forward together, along with all Albertans. And I invite all Albertans throughout this month to join in celebrating all that the black community has contributed and continues to contribute to our province. To the community, I say, know that your voice is always welcome here. 
and that we will always stand with you to celebrate your cultures, your histories, and your faiths against any who would seek to stoke hatred, division, and prejudice, and to support all those who instead celebrate freedom, independence, and equality, and to support you in continuing to be full participants at all levels and in all parts of our communities. Thank you to everyone for joining us here to celebrate tonight and to everyone working to host events and activities throughout the month in February, indeed recognizing many community leaders have been doing that here in our province for decades. Happy Black History Month. So there you go. I got to say that was a fantastic celebration. That was the fourth annual celebration of Black History Month at the Alberta Legislature. I'm really happy that's now that's part of our provincial calendar every year. It's something I look forward to all the time. So I had Marie in earlier, and as we were talking, she reminded me that I I just joined her also just recently in the city of St. Albert as they, for the first time, recognized Black History Month. Excellent. So, Marie, I had the chance to come out and uh, visit you out in St. Albert uh, last weekend. So, St. Albert has just officially, as a city, recognized for the first time February as Black History Month. Woo-hoo! Yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Uh, but I understand there's a lot of other things sort of happening in the community for Black History Month. What are some of the other things going yeah. on out there? So, there's an exhibit, I believe, this evening at uh, one of the art galleries in St. Albert. Uh, so, Ray Watkins is one of the counselors yes. in St. Albert, yes, and Ray. he is a fabulous photographer and okay. so I think it's called Bugs I'm not I'm not entirely sure of the exhibit but some of his photos will be on display um, there's a big event at the end of the month uh, silent auction and celebration um, I believe it's at the Arden I think it's the last Saturday of February and um, yeah a taste of Africa a taste of Africa absolutely which I'm, I'm so looking forward to and I've I know got you'll it be in there. my calendar indeed yeah. so yeah that's yeah. at uh, yeah City Hall there in St. Yeah. Albert, so from 4 yeah. to 7 p.m. on Saturday, yeah. the February 29th. And I just want to say, you know, I, I think I said it um, at the uh, proclamation on the weekend, but I just want to thank you, David Shep- Shepard, for doing such a great job a few years ago of pointing out the need for Alberta to um, embrace our black history and to try to understand it and to talk about it. And I think you're amazing. And I'm so thankful you came out to St. Albert. <laughs> well, oh, thanks, Marie. I appreciate that. And yeah, it was really cool to sort of see some of the folks there. Like, I think there, it's interesting, you know, the, the, the black community, you know, the uh, folks of African descent, whether they've been here for a while, the folks that are new Canadians. Yeah, they're kind of salted and sprinkled all over the province and sometimes you don't always see what's there so it was really cool to see some of the folks in St. Albert coming out and this is a community organization that kind of sprung up on their own yep. and decided that they wanted to yeah. do this thing. Yeah so Mayor Heron and I went to uh, their first event I think it was in the summer they had a picnic in the park and so we went I think it was on a Sunday afternoon and we went and of course everybody brought food and there was music and dancing and that was their very first event and it was like charged you could feel the energy and the joy and it was just um, you just knew that this was going to continue to grow and and to you know to gather support and, and people were just I just enjoyed being there and learning about all of the people in St. Albert and just their history and so yeah I'm really looking forward to the event at the end of the month Absolutely. Excellent. And so I see here, you had mentioned Ray Watkins exhibit. So it's an exhibit called A Bug's Life. Uh, and that's over at the... Vasa. Vasa, yeah, yeah. The Visual Arts Studio Association in St. Albert. And so, yeah, anyone that wants to check that out can go and see that yeah. there. Yeah. He's an incredibly talented uh, photographer. Yeah. So. 
Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Marie. Yeah, thanks, David. Well, there you have it, folks, another episode of The Herd. So looking forward to coming back next week, talking a bit more about some of the concerns around uh, the changes on the healthcare front and some other things we're going to dig up for you. Going to send you out today with a little something from Kaylee Cardinal. Now, we're coming up on the 2020 Juno Awards, and I'm very happy to say that a number of Edmonton uh, musicians and artists have been uh, nominated for Junos this year, including Kaylee Cardinal. Now, Kaylee is a Métis musician. She comes from the peace country of Alberta, but she's been around in Edmonton and playing here for quite a bit over the last little while. Uh, she's got some real blues and jazz kind of flavors, a bit of rock in there. So this, uh, we're going to play a track from her second album, which is nominated for a Juno as Indigenous Artist or Group of the Year. This is an album called Stories from a Downtown Apartment. It's the follow-up to her uh, her debut album, Everything and Nothing at All, which she won a uh, Canadian Music Award on for Indigenous Artist of the Year and was nominated for Best Pop Album at the CBC Indigenous Music Awards and eight nominations in the Edmonton Music Awards where she won Female Artist of the Year and Indigenous Recording of the Year. So Kaylee has been busy over the last couple of years. So we've got a track from Kaylee now from that from that album stories from a downtown apartment the song when all is said and done we'll see you next week